Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 6 Venice A Miracle on a Mudbank. Try to imagine the most unpromising piece of real estate on which to establish a society that might prosper. You would struggle perhaps to pick a worse spot than a waterlogged island off the northeast coast of 10th century Italy. Yet amid the chaos and collapse that followed the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire, that is where a small community was established on March the 25th, 421 AD, according to legend. The swamp seemed to offer relative safety and security, if little else. Venice was literally built in a backwater, with almost no farmland and few natural resources besides sea salt and a few fish. Out of the lagoon emerged between the 10th and 13th century what John Julius Norwich calls the richest and most prosperous commercial centre of the civilised world. Venice stands out as being the only society in Western Europe, indeed perhaps anywhere, that achieved a sustained increase in per capita output and income between the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West and the emergence of the Dutch economy in the early modern era. The Venetian Republic in the early Middle Ages was an extraordinary achievement. She was, in so many ways, precociously modern. Her constitutional arrangements included a complex system of checks and balances, and laborious due process. She was, by the standards of the day, tolerant, trading with the Muslim world, often in defiance of papal edicts, and relatively open to Jewish communities, albeit with intermittent periods of persecution. The state granted merchants the right to trade through the allocation of commender contracts. These limited the liabilities for merchants. Unlike the granting of monopolies and other trade privileges in other European towns at the time, it seems that commender contracts were allocated, if not to anyone who wanted one, then certainly to a wide range of entrepreneurs and merchants. You didn't need to be in the business of bribing the king in order to be allowed to trade. The commander contract system in Venice seems to have encouraged open competition rather than imposing restrictions. The population of Venice grew rapidly. By 1050, what had been a small fishing village a couple of centuries before was now home to about 45,000 people. By 1200, she was a city of 70,000. Before the Black Death in the mid-14th century, Venice's population had swelled to over 120,000. To an even greater extent than ancient Athens, Venice was quite literally unable to feed herself from what she grew. Like Athens, she sustained herself through trade. Her population not only grew, but those that lived there lived better. Output per capita in Venice was far higher than anywhere else on the planet. She shone while all around her in the Mediterranean was a sea of Malthusian gloom. Intensive economic growth allowed Venice to punch above her weight. Despite being a tiny city-state, 0.0005% the size of the Holy Roman Empire, and 0.0001% the size of the Ottoman Empire, Venice was often a match for these parasitic powers around the Mediterranean. Indeed, in 1204, she notoriously spearheaded the attack on Constantinople when her aged doge 
Enrico Dondalo led the first successful assault on the walls of that great city in almost a thousand years. How did she do it? The Venetians themselves attributed their success to the blessings of their patron, St Mark. But it wasn't divine determinism that accounted for her success. Venice was secure from external predators. Those muddy islands might have seemed an unlikely place to want to live, but the neighbourhood across the water was far worse. Venice's most impregnable lagoon protected her from marauders and from invasion. It saved her from the Longobards, then Pepin and the Franks. It kept out the Huns and the Saracens, whose fleets once got within sight of the city. It stopped the Normans far more effectively than any city wall. But it wasn't just the lagoons and the geography that kept predatory powers at bay. Venice had the great fortune to have been born, notionally at least, a child of Byzantium. She was at one time the most western point of the Byzantine Empire. This kept her free from the feudalism of the mainland and beyond the reach of the Holy Roman Emperor. At the same time, she was overlooked by the distant court in Constantinople. She was, in effect, outside any meaningful kind of imperial control. By AD 810, Venice was in effect independent, and from then on she was able to avoid getting gobbled up by any of the big power blocks around her. But even though she was an island, Venice was never insular. Her barges filled the waterways of northern Italy and the Adriatic. Because she began as a Byzantine province, Venice was born part of a wider Greek-speaking Mediterranean world. In other words, Venice networked with her neighbours. Even by modern standards, a very high proportion of economic activity in Venice was linked to trade, suggesting a high level of specialisation and exchange. The city grew rich, trading spices and manufactured Byzantine wares from the east. She gained trading rights in Constantinople and established a large Venetian quarter there. By 1140, Venice was importing raw cotton from the east, processing it and exporting it to be sold in Alexandria, Constantinople, Jerusalem. Trade functioned as an extension of Venice's resources. It allowed a few acres in an Italian lagoon to draw on the grain of the Po Valley, the timber of Dalmatia, the vineyards of Apulia, the sugar and the cotton from Cyprus, the silk from China, and the metalwork of Constantinople. Independence and interdependence aren't enough alone to account for Venice's economic miracle. The Serene Republic owes her success to a further factor. She was free from internal parasites too. Venice might have been an oligarchy, never really a democracy. But for her first few centuries, power was dispersed amongst a merchant aristocracy. Think of Florence and the name Medici comes to mind. The Sforza family are synonymous with medieval Milan, and the Este with Ferrara and Moderna, the Scalieri with Verona. But there's no equivalent family in Venice. 
To be sure, there were plenty of distinguished Venetian families like the Dandalos or the Morosini, who produced plenty of heroes, villains and statesmen. But no single family or faction dominated Venice in quite the way that the Medici and the rest did in other Italian city-states. In most northern Italian towns, the Republican theory of the communes was soon subverted by a tyrannical reality. Il Signori took over. Yet when in 1032, Domenico Orsellio attempted to set himself up as a Venetian signor, he was ousted. Tellingly, his replacement was a silk merchant with staunchly anti-dynastic views. Although they are few compared to the population of the city, observed a 14th century jurist, Bartolus of the Venetian aristocracy at the time, they are many compared to those ruling in other cities. After the attempted coup of 1032, on only two occasions over the next 700 years did the same family name appear consecutively on Venice's long list of doges. The power of the doge, who henceforth was elected by the General Assembly and subsequently by a ducal assembly, was progressively eroded. Doges could no longer appoint cronies to any of the offices of state. Each new doge was required to sign a binding promissory contract before assuming office, which in ever more elaborate terms stipulated things that they could not do. The Venetian constitution was complex and elaborate, at times to the point of near absurdity, but it kept power diffuse. The doge was held to account and answered to the merchant interests. Neither the doge nor the great council nor the Venetian senate could make decisions without the approval of the others. Venice, almost uniquely in the Mediterranean of the Middle Ages, had independent magistrates courts and courts of appeal, as well as the rule of law. The dispersion of power and the supremacy of the merchant interest amplified the gains of interconnection. They made the city an attractive trading hub. They facilitated voluntary exchange. By the late 10th century, the merchants had pushed successfully for a policy of free trade with Byzantium. They had sought and won tax exemptions on Venetian goods from the Holy Roman Empire and Otto III. They even traded openly with the Saracens in North Africa. Being independent, Venice could ignore papal edicts banning trade with Muslims, as well as the edicts that try to outlaw charging interest on loans. When two producers controlled the market in textiles, cement and building materials, the government broke up the duopoly and sold off the kilns. The Senate investigated unfair practices in the cotton trade with Cyprus. No one family was allowed more than one member on the key administration board. As well as ensuring competition, Venice's government was, as historian Frederick Lane puts it, frankly and efficiently capitalistic. Venetian law actively encouraged exchange and early capitalism. Commander contracts, not unlike the system of bottomary loans in ancient Rome, allowed investors to put private capital into trade missions almost as a sort of ad hoc joint stock company. 
They gave investors a measure of control over the venture into which they were putting their money and limited their liabilities. Commander contracts were so successful that they did not just facilitate private capital investment in private enterprise, they also allowed a measure of social mobility, and this is reflected in the official records of new investors. According to surviving government documents from the time, in 960 and then again in 982, between 65% and 81% of those acquiring a commander contract were doing so for the first time. Independence from external parasites and dispersed power to safeguard against internal ones, plus interdependence with the neighbours. We can be certain that these three magic ingredients are essential for intensive economic growth. Not merely because of what happens when they exist, but because of what we see happening when they're taken away. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.